Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How you doing? It's been uh, more of the same this week, so I can guess, but I'll ask anyway. How are you doing? Yeah, it's been more of the same. I'm okay. And the worst is that the same is like, is this horrifying violence on the people of Gaza and in the West Bank increasingly. And so it's it's hard. It's It's hard to watch this. I'm sure that Lots of listeners are feeling similarly, and it's especially hard to see how far away what people on the ground are saying from people who actually have power in this country and in other countries as well. And I think that that creates... Wait, what do you mean? Didn't Justin Trudeau call for a cease <laughs> humanitarian pause yesterday? <gasps> Okay, can we talk about that? Let's 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 start uh, yeah, let's talk this about episode it. by talking about that. So let's get through the, the 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 as they say in the thick of it, the Oxford pleasantries, and we'll get into this. Um, so I'm okay. How are you? I am feeling quite similarly to you. I feel as though you know my my phone is kind of stuck on the Al Jazeera live feed and listening to uh, different takes from folks in terms of analysis and trying to really understand through the fog what's happening um, and also, you know, deal with the the sort of wretchedness that one feels when um, you you see how you feel about the, the tragedy and the, the destruction and all that should be unthinkable, how you see all of the different organizations, human rights organizations, NGOs, uh, political organizations, unions, you see all of the amazing solidarity protests around the world. And then, and then you see like, you know, the McCarthyism and, and, and the fact that the people in power are not in the same place. And it's, uh, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just, it feels like a jumble in my head. It's like what, what to make of this and how to, uh, stretch it out so that it makes sense. Um, knowing that it will never make sense because this does not make sense. Uh, and that is, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to put into words that sort of uh, weird experience. Um, but that's, that is how I'm doing. Well, let's try to stretch that out and make sense of all of this in this week's episode, because I think that, um, that's, what's really necessary. That's really what is absolutely necessary right now, especially considering the propaganda that is so strong, trying to get us to believe other things, to believe that that ambulance is Hamas, that school is Hamas, that street is Hamas, that bakery is Hamas, everything is Hamas, even though 70% of the victims are women and children who are not likely members of Hamas. So we'll get into that, but let's do some housekeeping first. First, Winnipeg, we are still coming for you. We're coming for you. We're going to have a really great live show in Winnipeg at the end of the month. Uh, If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you should because they are selling quite well at thepointofsale.com. Please get your tickets. We would love to see you out. Yes. And you can get tickets. We have embedded the the ticket um, store on the website episodes of the main episodes. So sandynor.com, just go to the main episode of the week and you'll see that link there. And there's also a Facebook group just to remind people to go. So a Facebook event. So whatever. We'll see you in Winnipeg. And uh, Sandy, uh, we got some gratitude. Oh my God. 
Gratitude is always great to start with. <laughs> yeah. So thanks to everybody this week who's donated to the podcast. Uh, that's done through patreon.com slash Sandy and Nora. Um, in a lot of, you know, thanks also to people for the for the kind words, uh, for sharing the episodes. You know, as independent podcasters in this country, like all of the forces um, that that try to make sure that no one hears Sandy and Nora uh, are in full, full, full operation. And so we really do rely on word of mouth. That is the most important way for us to get um, listeners. And Sandy, I, I think that I got some new people tuned into the podcast in a couple of talks that I've done in the last couple of weeks. Oh, that's great. Hello, new listeners. Thanks for joining us. That's right. That's right. And if you if you were there wondering what the hell is Nora Loretto going to say about health and safety, I hope I hope I blew your minds. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> this week, especially thanks so much to Nat, Cyril, who I think is giving us our first donation in pounds, which is cool. Rachel, Jared, Morgan, James, Steve, Karen, Nitya and Mark. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all so much. So if you didn't understand the weird way that I said cease humanitarian pause, uh, let me just recount for you that we are recording this on November 5th. And on November 4th, Justin Trudeau is addressing the media at um, the Canadian Embassy after the inaugural America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity Summit, which was in Washington yesterday. So that would have been November 4th. And in it, in this, you know, televised address, he says that uh, we need to call for a cease, promptly remembers that uh, Canada is, you know, uh, beholden uh, to the U.S. government and whatever the United States government position is. And then interrupts himself in the middle of saying ceasefire and then says, we need to see a humanitarian pause. And then as he realizes his massive gaffe, he then says, uh, because we, we need to start, start seeing the ceasing, the ceasing of. And then he just trips and tumbles over his words like he has the entire time that he's been prime minister. And I'm glad this is finally being noticed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. You know, what is so fascinating to me is that we've got a prime minister that slips up and says the word cease and knows that he's not allowed to say ceasefire, though probably wants to. I think that actually any reasonable person wants to call for a ceasefire. People that are not calling for ceasefires have other things going on for why they're not calling for them. Yeah, sorry. What the fuck is a humanitarian pause? Like what? <laughs> Isn't that the same thing as ceasing the fire? <laughs> just, if you are pausing the like, what is the issue with saying the word? It's like, in fact, that is the, the simple position and like the and, and it's not a real position it's like it, it doesn't solve anything like this is not a, like an amazing position to take or anything or super radical like they're not ta talking about an end to the siege or my god an end to the occupation or like a solving of the, the issue from where it where it's uh where it originates like a ceasefire no we cannot say ceasefire we must say humanitarian pause like what what is the fucking difference yeah, and I was just it, like the, the 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 relationship of that to like someone like Pierre Polyever who accidentally says the N word, and is like, whoa, uh, just nothing just happened right that minute. I'm going to continue walking on by. It's just like so illuminative, illuminative of both of their politics. 
<laughs> like in very different ways. I was like, wow, that is so fascinating. And then I'm like, I wonder what Jugmeet Singh is like trying to not say. And I didn't really come up with anything. I, I don't know. I think it might be like Rolex <laughs> or something, you know. <laughs> Anyway, so why can't we say ceasefire? (laughs) But but that like, but that we would be having these sort of rhetorical arguments in the face of all of the just inhumane treatment that people are are experiencing right now. The three refugee camps that have been bombed in the last week, the hospitals, the ambulances, the 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 women who are undergoing uh uh c-sections without uh without any painkillers like there's just so much horrific unimaginable stuff going on and to have these sort of like well our biggest issue is like the rhetorical way in which we refer to what should happen next is just absolutely repugnant and just so shows how morally bankrupt our our governing systems must be in order to allow that. Yeah, 100%. So here we have the federal government and pretty much every province uh, refusing to agree to a ceasefire. And a lot of places there's been motions served by either the NDP or Quebec Solidaire. Interestingly, though, where the NDP really counts, which is where they're in power in British Columbia, they also don't yet support a ceasefire or perhaps don't at all support a ceasefire. So we see this as a proxy for how power gets maintained in this in this country on something, as you say, that is so not radical and that is so absolutely necessary. Um, You know, when you've got one side bombing the fuck out of another side, the most obvious call is a ceasefire. Though when we think back to Russia and Ukraine, there was not really a call for Russia to stop bombing either. And that was done so that we would support fighting Russia's invasion with Ukraine fighting back rather than, you know, the world calling on Russia to cease its fire, though there were sanctions and there were other penalties put on Russia to try and stop them from their war on Ukraine. Not so in Israel. Not so in Israel. So the distance between where people are at and where our leadership is, I think that this is the most confounding thing right now. And Sandy, I'm sure you saw yesterday, like it was billed as 100,000 Canadians out for Palestine. I think it probably was 100,000 people, if not slightly higher. Huge, huge rallies all across Canada and lots of beautiful solidarity, lots of speeches, lots of of Gazans given the microphone to talk about what they're experiencing. Certainly in Quebec City, there there was two folks from Gaza, one who was here on sabbatical and can't go back. And his family is obviously under attack. Another who said that he's lost 90 members of his family. He's a young, a young person, a young man from Ottawa who was in Quebec City for work and, you know, was able to speak at our rally. And I'm sure that that kind of thing is replicated all across Canada in, in in the marches and in the protests. And how does it get remixed by people who want us to believe that Israel is the victim in all of this? It gets remixed as these are hateful marches. These are violent marches. These are marches that support Hamas. These are marches that um, that uh, are full of people who are barbaric, right? I saw all of these comments yesterday online talking about these marches. And I think that that's an interesting indication of how scared folks in the status quo or folks in power really are about the power of the people to force our governments to change on this. Because at this point, Justin Trudeau very, very may well 
lose his government over this, which is got to be on the front of his mind, obviously. Man, that guy's just like between a pile of shit and a pile of shit, right? Like being, being like electrocuted by the United States or being electrocuted by the electorate is like, woo. Okay, good luck, buddy. Yeah, well, the, but the, I, I think the one thing about that weird statement that he made that we can say following yesterday's amazing um, uh, protests, uh, not only in Canada, but around the world, is that it is getting to him. You know, it is getting to these leaders. It is having an impact in some way. Um, and I and I bet you that there's some serious arguments happening up at the top as people realize that they are going to be unseated as a result of how they're um, how they are responding or not responding politically to this. And I mean, the the protests are in the face of, yes, people calling this like outrageously calling these rallies, as you say, outrageously um, uh, in support of hate, which, you know, it's, it's not going to work, <laughs> you know, that tactic for the, for those who are engaging in this type of propaganda that it has roundly failed, like look at all over the world. We understand that when we are uh, criticizing the actions of a government, uh, of a governmental regime, of a war of a wartime governmental regime, we're not talking about the identity of anybody. Everybody knows this. Like people can see through that argument. It's not going to work. And it's also incredible given the McCarthyist type of sanctions that people are experiencing as they voice their, um, their feelings, their opposition to genocide. People are losing their jobs. People are resigning from positions after being told that they can't say something or they need to, to, to walk something back. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the McCarthyism that people are, 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 um, the McCarthyist campaign that is being engaged here is kind of like unbelievable. I, I, you know, would love to, to, I don't know, you know, like, have we experienced anything like this since the McCarthyist area? I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, and yet still, uh, people are, are, you know, uh, taking those risks and getting out on the street. And uh, have you seen these, these actions, uh, both in uh, Oakland and Belgium? I think that they're worth mentioning a little bit because they're just so inspiring mm -hmm. of like the ways that the types of things that people are thinking of doing. Yes, yes. Why don't you why don't you tell us about them? Sure. So um, first off is, uh, you know, the labor movement in Belgium, you know, the uh, the union representing the airport workers, you know, they were all aware that they were handling um, uh, weaponry that was going to be uh, taken to. To, to Israel in support of the war. And so uh, the unions, the workers themselves, have decided that they are calling on all of their members to no longer handle that material and just refuse that their work will not be used to support the war. And this is like one, like an amazing show of solidarity and also just an amazing expression of what the power of workers are like, yes, countries around the world are supporting Israel and the war effort in different ways, uh, led of course, by the United States and that they are dependent on average people, uh, closing their eyes and continuing to do, uh, what, 
you know, their supervisors are telling them to do in order to get all of those, um, that weaponry, that the machinery of war where it needs to be. And so for people and unions in particular to say, no, not, we, we certainly will not be supporting this. That mm-hmm. is a massive kind of power that workers have. And it's the kind of like creative action uh, that uh, labor unions should be working towards taking um, and the type of power that they should be flexing whenever there's some sort of uh, repugnant situation going on like this attempted genocide. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, last week we recorded on the weekend and Monday morning, there was uh, about 100 people who tried to shut down the Incas weapons manufacturer in northern Toronto. And this is a, That's right. a Canadian... Israeli company that is providing and manufacturing weapons for Israel. Uh, there is direct connections between us, our, our tax dollars, the, you know, the tax dollars that Inc. has got from, um, from, from different kinds of grants in this country, because all corporations just get so much public money in this country, it's really disgusting. Uh, the help that they've gotten from governments on, on trade missions with Israel to, to, to solidify different deals and stuff. Like, we are very implicated in this. And, you know, the 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 protest uh, the protest at the facility that same day uh, something like thirty three or twenty seven member of parliament offices were occupied all across Canada demanding that those MPs call for a ceasefire and then now this past weekend with this huge expression of of, of peace and anti war sentiment which you know. I people have been a little bit weird with like this is the biggest rally ever had and it's like it's not it's not the biggest rally ever had I mean even February fifteenth two thousand uh, two thousand and three which we've talked about on the show it was it was a massive massive rally the world said no to war I don't know how this compares to February February fifteenth I'd have to go back and and look but it doesn't matter because they are massive they're massive in the context of what's happening. They're massive in the context of of Canadians saying we deny like what we see. We deny our government's uh, 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 positions. We refuse to be supportive of that. Uh, this is settler colonialism in overdrive, and we see what settler colonialism looks like in Canada. So we have a we have an understanding that is you know maybe even more profound than a lot of other countries might have, uh, or at least we have a different unique perspective on it. And that's why it is so important that these actions continue and we continue to put pressure on politicians because it is very clear that people are starting to crack. Very, very clear. You know, a lot of uh, attention been put on Justin Trudeau. Um, I, I think that this is actually something that's damaging Francois Legault in Quebec. So this is a guy who had record high support throughout his first mandate. And he has refused also to condemn what's happening and call for a ceasefire, which in Quebec is really weird because this province actually has a long history of standing with Palestine um, for, for many, many, many years. Like this, this, this province has had very strong Palestinian uh, relationships. And here comes a prime minister who is much more aligned to Canadian nationalism, right wing Canadian nationalism. And he's like, oh, we're going to open an office in Tel Aviv to like promote Quebec business. People don't like that. People don't like that. And we're seeing massive uh, um, protests in Montreal and Quebec City. And I think that, you know, the, like his popularity is, is, is dropping like a stone. And now there's other things happening and people should be aware that uh, there's a, we're about to walk into a couple of weeks where about 620,000 public sector workers are going on strike. 
starting yesterday. <laughs> the first rounds of strikes have started yesterday in Quebec. And so there's just incredible movement of people power that is so exciting and so potentially transformative. And when, I, when, when we talked in a previous episode about how this is a paradigm-shifting moment, it is. It is a paradigm-shifting moment. And when the paradigm shifts, it means we see these backlashes. Like you said, you know, have, has it been as strong since the McCarthyist era? I, I think a lot about the post-September 11th period where people actually didn't have the confidence and courage to say what they were saying privately. A, a couple of people did. One name that comes to mind is Sinera Tabani, who had been the, the, the head of, of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women Canada. Um, she got in, she was totally harassed and, and experienced a ton of abuse for comments that she made right after September 11th. And then you can think of other people like the Dixie Chicks or whatever. Uh, but very few people were willing or, or able or had the, the capacity for whatever reason to say these things. Here we are in a, in a, in a similar ish situation and people are saying these things and saying, I don't care what the, what the, what the, um, uh, uh, repercussions are going to be because it is more important for me to condemn violence and to stand up for justice than it is for me to worry about my career. Like that's basic. And, you know, I think of these, um, did you see these, the wait staff at the Moxies in downtown Toronto who came out and showed solidarity and then like Zionist activists mobilized to get them fucking fired? Like, are you I kidding did. me? You're going after young, young women in the service service industry as if they can't yeah. like probably find any other job anywhere because it's the service industry there's always jobs like fuck off actually they don't have the right to say mm, maybe killing 10,000 people in three weeks is bad they don't have that right you don't know if they've condemned maybe they condemned Hamas first maybe they condemned the the attacks on Israelis first and yet they still support a ceasefire they still support peace in the Middle East and you go and you get them fired that kind of stuff is cha changes people's lives and changes people's understanding of their relationship with power and uh, and it sucks and we need to support people that go through those experiences and we need to find ways to give people the confidence to be able to speak out but it also shows just how tenuous the grasp is of people with power on this issue yeah I you know that that that's comment that you made in re reference to, to folks talking about this is like the biggest that they've ever seen. I think the reason why people say that or, or feel like an inclination to say that is not just because, you know, there's like no history and uh, news media, but also because like there's this idea that if we say that this is, um, uh, unprecedented that, you know, then they'll have to do something like, you know, they'll have to note, like they have to take action. But actually, I think it is stronger to reference the times when it has happened before to these sorts of numbers. Uh, because again, that those anti-war protests in 2003, they certainly had an impact on Canada deciding not to support the invasion of Iraq. You know, the, the 2009 Tamil protests in Toronto, which were the largest that I've ever seen of any uprising yeah. in Toronto. And I probably think, I think probably largest ever, like not only were there massive demonstrations, but they were consistently massive. Th that had an impact on the way that Canada was paying attention to what was happening in Tamil Elam and the response to it. And so it is, it's actually stronger to say like, we've been seen something like this since this time. And this is the way that the government responded at that time. And I do want to just to raise up this, this one other 
um, uh, protest that happened, which is the one in, in Oakland, where protesters stopped a ship um, that or delayed a ship that was going to uh, be delivering um, uh, weapons to Israel by sea. Like, you know, people are, are taking these really courageous actions. And this this McCarthyist stuff, like all the law schools, oh my God. Oh my God. You know, are you, it's like, guys, are you fucking kidding? Yeah, it's... Law student, like, they are paid to debate, okay? Like... <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> right. And it's just like these law schools across the United States and now Canada as well that are taking, you know, there's students and professors who will be signing um, uh, messages of support, statements of support of Palestinian people. And then there's these, you know, these McCarthyist campaigns going on, trying to encourage law firms not to hire these students who have put their name to a document that is saying, we want peace. <laughs> like I just, it is, it is kind of out of the realm of the imaginable, but this is the thing is that someone had to imagine it uh, for for it to be happening in this way. And so, you know, we, our imaginations just have to be better. And I think as, as people who, you know, are not intent on, on destroying um, whole cultures, whole ethnicities, I think our imaginations can be better um, than the people who are just desperate for death and destruction. Yeah. And then also that anticipate things getting even more weird in terms of how people talk about this. Because, you know, I I sympathize somewhat with someone whose entire existence has assumed give like it's a given that Israel is is just and does just things and is a democracy and whatever. Like we all grow up with different scripts that are, you know, imperfect or sometimes wrong or whatever. Like, you know, it's difficult to break out of things that you've always understood to be true. And so as a lot of people who struggle to explain and to justify what is completely unjustifiable and people who might otherwise never try to justify such things, it's going to get weirder and it's going to get worse. You know, like there's going to be more name calling. There's going to be more charges of of hateful speech or whatever. And it's because things are getting Way worse. Like, I, I think in the first episode where we talked about this, we asked how many deaths was it going to take for it to actually matter? And this is the this is the critical question. The official death toll seems to be past 10,000. I've seen Israeli sources putting it actually at 20,000. Uh, this, this puts this campaign in, like, in the post-World War II period in, like, the stratosphere of massacres. I, I wrote about this on Substack. So if you actually want to see the list of other massacres, massacres being like within a very short period of time, not like how many people died over the entire invasion of Iraq, but it's it's very, very short period of time in a very small space and, uh, you know, of a people who cannot leave, of a people who are controlled by the same hand that is bombing them. And there has to be a limit to the revenge here. Because this, like, again, this is all about revenge. And if you honestly believe, and this is what I, what I find the most confusing of, of, of the people's rhetoric who are, who are still invested in Israel being correct on all of this, but if you, if you still believe that, and you still believe that, that Hamas, the existence of Hamas, their very existence, is the threat, that they need to be eliminated for Israel and Israelis to be safe, do you actually think ethnic cleansing and genocide is going to be the way to do it? Like you, you can't 
actually think that. So if we assume that you can't individually target every single Hamas person, because we already know that hundreds of people are being killed in these strikes, apparently to kill a single Hamas individual, which is like, I don't even buy that. Um, the, The line is so ridiculous that it's like the proof is there, but fine. Let's say we believe that. How how many is it? Is it 500 is okay? Is it 1,000 is okay for every single Hamas individual to be killed? Uh, who is Hamas? Like, we're talking about people who've lived under siege for 20 fucking years. Do you think that they're going to have many warm feelings towards Israel and the humiliation that they're experiencing and the, and the years of death and destruction that has been, like, their lives? And we sit back in North America and it's like, well, Hamas needs to be killed. I, I mean, you want to kill Hamas? You end the occupation. You end the siege. You give people what they need. You allow people freedom. You allow people the freedom to travel, to see their relatives in other countries. You allow people to sail and to have commerce. That's how you, quote unquote, end Hamas. It's obvious. You don't do it through violence. You do it through nonviolence. You do it through giving people their freedom. And this is what I, I is so absolutely bonkers to me to see people who have who who are thinking people who have become you know known or personalities or maybe they're the son of former prime minister fucking brian mulrooney and it's like are you kidding me you honestly think like where in the history of the world has ethnic cleansing made something safer that is literally the logic that is being fucking put forward here and I cannot countenance that. That doesn't make any sense. There's, that doesn't make any sense by any measure of any kind of logic anywhere. And yet we are being told to countenance that. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this movie before. We do know what happens next, right? <laughs> like, uh, there is going to be, uh, after this campaign is over, a reckoning, some sort of investigation, some reports put out. Man, we didn't know it was so bad. We didn't know it that was that bad. And then there will be apologies potentially and some commitments to never do this again. And next time we are sure that the responsibility to act that is um, supposed to be uh, one of the tenets of international cooperation when there is a, a genocide next time, we'll, we'll get it right. We'll, we'll, we'll see it properly and we'll do the right thing. Like that's, that's what happens next. And I I don't want that outcome. I know that many people around the world don't want that outcome because that's what we're seeing in the streets. I mean, the, the, the awfulness of this is really hard to, to express, you know, the, we, we spoke already about that, the hospitals, the ambulances, and that, and now more water supply have been bombed in the last couple of days uh, the more, the last remaining bakery in Gaza was eliminated. I mean, the solar uh, solar energy uh, solar panels are being bombed so that energy can't be delivered to to the places that need it. Like, not only is the death toll what it is, and the injury toll what it is. It's like it's gonna get worse as as people are unable to get the care that they need um uh in in uh, the acute care that they need when they are being injured as people are unable to uh get access to clean water as disease spreads like there's going to be so much more to this that it's going to make that death toll and the changed lives um numbers skyrocket and so like in this in this place that we're in you know, we take a look at uh, what are supposed to be our democracies and we do what we say what 
I mean, I think that this is like one of those critical moments, like in the same way that I felt like the pandemic was one of those critical moments where we should be taking a look at our governments and saying like, okay, we, we absolutely need to build something different. Like we absolutely, like there is the, the, the government's our, everything that's in power in our world, uh, like works because of like a tenuous consensus that we adhere to, um, that we are like, yeah, we're allowing this to continue. And when we don't, when we all exit the parties, when we create new institutions, when we decide that no, we will no longer, we will no longer agree to this and we are going to create something new. That is like the, the critical moment where power is able to shift. And when you see all of the power on the ground around the world, that is an opportunity mm-hmm. to demand something different and to create something different. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? One thing that happened in Quebec City on the lines of creating something different, and I'm so, I just feel so honored to know all of these folks doing this, is that Sunday night, there was a prayer service called for specifically for Christians and Jews and Muslims to come together and pray at the Cathedral of Holy Trinity, which is an Anglican cathedral. They, they spearheaded it. The Catholics will be there. Folks from the synagogue will be there. Folks from a couple of the mosques will be there. And there's no speeches, obviously. I mean, having speeches would probably be very difficult, but everybody is there to collectively pray for peace in the Middle East. And for me, that's a real creative different kind of action to create relationships with people that are absolutely so critical to reach across and to find out what exactly are, what is driving this? You know, is it, is it pure capitalism? Let's talk about capitalism, profits, the pursuit of profits. Is it settler colonialism? Let's talk about that. Is it the very big fear in a lot of Jewish communities that the Holocaust will happen again and that Israel was supposed to be and is supposed to be the safe haven for Jews to avoid uh, ever experiencing what they experienced uh, ever again. And talking about this and, and talking through these things is so critical. It has to happen in real life. It cannot happen online. And it also means bringing people together who who might not necessarily yet know each other. Now, the reason why that's happening in Quebec City is because in the aftermath of the shooting attack at the mosque here, which was an Islamophobic attack, which was made possible because of the, of the racist and dehumanizing language around Muslims that is so prevalent in Canada that is rising thanks to the way that people are talking about Hamas and Palestinians. But the relationships built in the aftermath of that horrible event uh, have allowed people to have the trust and the friendships to be able to say, come together. It's, it's, it's a safe place to, to pray together and we're going to have this vigil. And so that is something that people listening, like maybe you're in a situation where you also could do something similar. Maybe there are these creative actions that we do at the same time as the, as the standard actions that we have to do, the demonstrations, the protests, the occupations. And I have a lot of hope for that. Um, and I think that, you know, as as destructive and as horrible as everything is, we have to always have hope. Like this this can't be nihilistic. We can't just be like, this is this is so horrible and it's gonna be horrible and everyone's gonna die. We have to have hope because people are alive and people will be alive, people will survive this. And and, and every day that we build this even bigger is another potential day that we can stop this from happening in the future. So building those connections I think is really important. Yeah. And I mean, not having hope is, is failing the Palestinian people. Like that is us 
actively failing the Palestinian people. And so there has to be a level of optimism that that we are engaged in. Um, and, uh, you know, like this idea that we will do whatever we can to win. Now, I know that uh, some of our listeners have had, you know, going to these rallies, um, attending these protests, have uh, have had some questions for us, Nora. And I think that there's some uh, particular questions that came in that we wanted to address. Yes, 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 yes. So got a, a thing from a listener, got a question from a listener who was at um, a, a solidarity rally for Palestine this past weekend and noticed that side by side with them were people who have been protesting against the trans rights issue. And they're trying to sort through that. They're trying to sort through how then do we talk or build or discuss one issue where we're on the same side, where other issues we might find ourselves on different sides. And I think that that is a really important thing for activists to consider, especially activists who are white and who may not have any connection with Muslim communities where they live. Sandy, do you want to take this uh, first crack or would you like me to? Uh, why don't you take a first crack? I have a, a thought as to what to do, and I'm curious about what your first crack would, would be. Sure. Perfect. So the most important thing when building solidarity is building solidarity all the time. And when you're in a crisis situation, certain kinds of solidarities emerge that are, um, you know, more or less convenient, right? And I'm, I don't mean convenient, like, well, I'll explain what I mean. And hopefully you'll understand. You know, we are opposed to mass slaughter. Okay. So that's convenient because we all oppose mass slaughter. We're all on the same size, same side. And that convenience is important because there isn't any time for us to learn about what's going on necessarily because there's there's a time crunch, right? There are people dying every minute. And so we have to express our solidarities very, very quickly. That is much easier done when you know people already, when you're already doing work together. And when it comes to bridging divides that feel like they are difficult to bridge, let's say you are an atheist and you want to work with religious communities. That can be difficult because as an atheist, you feel very strong in your opinion that there's no such thing as God and prayer is silly and why would we do these things? And a religious person thinks that, of course, there's a, th a such thing as God and we must, you know, pray and, and, and honor God in the way that our religious doctrine says that we should do it, right? Those are kind of not reconcilable positions. But I promise you, if you find yourself in a, in a, in a solidarity relationship with someone who feels like you have different irreconcilable issues, the friendships that you build the relationships that you build through doing whatever kind of solidarity work that you might have goes so far to then have conversations on issues that might seem more irreconcilable. And especially on the trans issue, which might feel bizarre or difficult or wrong or incomprehensible, where there is education that needs to happen. You cannot do that education at all if you aren't in relationship with someone. So how do you build relationships with someone? Well, you know, there's always, you know, there's always like good queer organizing is going to be intersectional. It's going to include religious people. And if you're, if you're doing queer organizing and you, and you look around the room, you're like, wait, we don't actually have committed religious people here. That's, that's a, that's a gap, right? Or maybe not just, maybe there's like a couple of like, I don't know, Unitarian church people who are like, cool, but like, well, we're missing a lot of other folks. So then you got to build that into your activism in another space. 
if you're entering into spaces and you're recognizing people who are on the other side of an issue, chances are they're recognizing you too, right? And so smiling at one another, maybe having a conversation, not about the issues of which you disagree, but just introducing yourself or saying, wow, I haven't seen this many people out in a long time in Regina. Isn't this great? You know, there are so many ways to be human about this and to not be worried about the demarcated lines in the sand and to build those solidarities. Because if you ever find yourself at a rally where you're super passionate and your opponents are someone you know, who you've struggled with, who you can talk to, the dynamic completely changes, completely changes. And there's trust on both sides to have a conversation honestly and say, what is the issue here? What is the, what's the source of these politics? And how do we find ourselves in a place through, that, through reconciling our differences that we actually can build solidarities that will endure? Yeah, I mean, unsurprisingly, we have similar approaches to this. Like my my thought, I know that the the the, the folks we're asking this question, we're kind of like trying to grapple with is is now the time? Like in this rally, do do I approach this person and and say, and you know, probably not. Like that's probably not the greatest time to talk about the thing that you disagree with uh, when you are coming together on something that is. Uh, you know, of, of equal importance that you do agree on, but, but it is the time to, to make the connection with that person. I think, I think it is the time to do that because what we, what we need when we are so um, polarized and um, opposed on, on different sides of an issue is for a door to be opened where one can listen to one another and hear what the other is saying. What we don't want is to kind of replicate the internet in real life. I have, I will block that person (laughs) as I walk down the street. I don't see you. I don't recognize you, whatever, but you do recognize them. And look, as we've said many times before, you do not have to be friends with everybody that you organize with. They may not be people you want to have dinner with, but part of organizing is having conversations with people and convincing people to be on a particular side of an issue, trying to make an issue uh, massively popular with the masses. And that means having conversations with people that you probably would not hang out with maybe. Maybe you would hang out with them. I don't know. Maybe when you when you have a conversation with them, you you discover that oh, this is an education issue, and you become um, acquainted in a way that you weren't expecting. Uh, after education is done and minds are changed, but my approach would probably be to you know say something like "Fancy seeing you here," <laughs> see see if there was <laughs> see if there was a way um, that uh, that sort of conversing some sort of connection could continue so that I could have those, those uh, types of conversations. Now, the level of risk for people is going to be different. You know, if, if you are trans yourself and are walking in that rally and see someone who you saw in an anti-trans rally, 
you know, you might, you might have a different calculus about whether it makes sense to put yourself in that position. But for me, like as someone who is not trans, I would put myself in that position because the risk is lower for me, um, personal risk. And I can have, I can say like, Hey, uh, fancy seeing you here, strike up a conversation and perhaps see you at the next rally or what are you doing afterwards or whatever and have uh, the type of conversation that needs to be had um, in an attempt to to say, like, if you can show solidarity here, like, can you see the linkages between this struggle and and then and the next struggle? Mm hmm. Totally. And I mean, we've also lost a lot of uh, institutional knowledge there many years ago, and I don't know if they're still organizing, but one of the most uh, powerful groups on campuses was Queers Against Israeli Apartheid, or QIA. Mm -hmm. That would mm -hmm. be another group that might be able to have these kinds of conversations specifically so people can strategize within QIA and talk about, especially because of Israel's pinkwashing, right? I mean, there are connections. You're not going to lead this with someone who might have been on the other side of a trans rally. But organizing against the pinkwashing of Israel is really, really important. And finding uh, solidarities to build between and among people who are queer and who are against Israeli apartheid, I mean, that's great. That's those, those are really important groups that could be easily restarted because all the folks who organized around Kwaya a decade or two decades ago, they're all still around. And if you don't know what's going on, I mean, Google it. Google queers against Israeli apartheid and see... If there's been any action recently or find out who a local, a local organizer was in 2010 and, and reach out to them, do that kind of work. Um, because those are spaces where you can strategize about these things. And your presence is is important, right? Like it's one thing to have no idea like who a trans person is because you've never met them. But it's a whole other thing. If you've been marching together for six months, God, God willing, it's not going to be six months. But if you've been marching together for a long time and all of a sudden you're, it's like, oh, that that person's trans. Oh, I you know, I didn't know. Or oh, I know that person. It all of a sudden becomes completely different than what, you know, what Scott Moe is telling you about these issues or whatever, Daniel Smith or whatever, right? So yeah, solidarity building always was important. And that's all we've got really. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like the, the, the maybe the reason that this isn't, um, you know, like something that is immediately um, the option that comes into your mind when you're thinking about this is because generally in society, we've become like super, super conflict avoidant. But the, the issue, like all of these issues that we're struggling on, you are going to to um, have conflicts. You're going to meet up against um against inertia like that is the way our society is set up is that it's it is hard to change minds it's hard to create a paradigm shifts um but that is that's part of the work it's something that we have to be prepared to do if we are serious about um struggling for the causes that we that we um so often are talking about on this podcast and elsewhere and so i think you know like <sighs> Having that sort of conf conflict laden conversation is important because it prepares you for the next conflict laden conversation. <laughs> and it takes it takes the power away from from any other conflict that you could you could kind of imagine like the the action of of people taking over MP and MPP offices um, that is, you know, that's a, a, a gr groups of people who have like overcome that sort of um, uh, conflict avoidantness uh, in order to make uh, a, a really impactful uh, 
uh, statement, uh, p- make their position known to try to to shift the way things are happening in our world. And I mean, Nora and I can tell you, like, there's nothing more like that will make you feel like you are fucking invincible than like (laughs) sitting in a room full of people or maybe online, Nora will have to tell you about that more than me, but sitting in a room full of people who are like, you know, making you eat shit because they disagree with something, um, that, that you are quite passionate about and you know, you're on the right side of like, if you, if you have to hone your argument skills by sitting in a room full of people who are just like, you, you know, trying to make you, um, to agree to something that is morally repugnant. Like there, there is no conflict that, you know, like it, whether it's a conflict with a friend or a family member or afterwards, like that you, that you are going to like, feel like you can't overcome. And, you know, you might as well train yourself on an issue that is so, you know, like the morals on it are so like that, that, that there's no argument that is going to work on you. Um, because I, I promise you it's, it doesn't, it's, not as bad as it seems like it's going to feel to engage in, in that one-in-one conversation where someone might just simply disagree with you. Um, it, it will help you prepare for those, uh, for those times when you're, you might be deciding to put your body, um, in, in a place, uh, like an occupation of an MP's office to say, no more genocide and to have somebody say, well, but don't you think, no, 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 no. It will put you in that place. It will give you the experience that you need, um, in order to not be that conflict avoidant and to address the issue head on. 